Now, uh, lot of you listening this morning, I presume you'd be flying around shopping centres and supermarkets to stock up. Uh, and for almost 20 years, my next guest was the face of many ad campaigns in the run-up to Christmas with his uh, Quinsworth slogan, that's real value. Uh, Morris Pratt, you're very, very welcome indeed. Uh, we'll be talking about Barrettstown and stuff uh, later on. It w- It was another life, wasn't it? It was a kind of a more innocent life. And you had been working in advertising. Explain how you got involved in retail. I will. Thanks, uh, Marianne. Good morning. Good morning to you. Um, yeah, it was another life, you're right, um, in lots of respects. How did I get involved? I was, uh, when I left school in 72, um, didn't want to go to college, wanted to go and work. Uh, so uh, I had heard about this thing called marketing, which was very embryonic at the time, didn't really know what it meant. Yeah. Other people didn't either. But it intrigued me because I thought it was somewhat related to how you could convince consumers to do things that they mightn't have thought they might want to do themselves. Yeah. Uh, so I um, I looked at, at opportunities to study it, uh, discovered there was a marketing degree course available in the College of Commerce in Rathmines. Right. So decided I'd do that at night. You could only do it at night at the time. Uh, and I suppose that engaged my initial interest in the whole concept of, of consumerism branding and so on um, and fairly shortly after that I responded to an ad I saw in the newspaper for a media assistant a media buyer in an advertising agency and I thought that's in a related category to marketing so I applied for the job fortunate to get an interview must have said the right things at the interview because I got the job right um, spent uh, the next seven or eight years involved in, in the advertising world but first of all as a media assistant then as a media planner and buyer, then as an account executive, as they were called in those days. Yeah. Um, and then one of the, uh, I, I moved from the agency I first worked for, which was Hunter Advertising, to Desamar and Partners, and they had recently acquired the Quinsworth advertising account. So that's where I first came into contact with Quinsworth specifically, although I worked on other accounts at the time as well. Um, and so uh, I, I was involved with them for six or seven years, um, effectively as their account executive. Yeah. Uh, and then unt- until one day I was out in the head office in Dunleary and they said to me, we'd like you to move your desk from Fitzwilliam Place to Dunleary. Uh, it wasn't quite like that, but something along those lines. Yeah. Um, and so that was my <laughs> introduction, if you like, to the whole concept, to, well, to retailing. Um, but interestingly enough, as I was reflecting um, earlier this year on the sad passing of Fergal Quinn. Yeah. Um, that he, he was a kind of a hero of yours, wasn't he? Oh, he was, absolutely, yeah. 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 I mean, he was a world-class retailer, uh, yeah. no question about it. And when I was involved in the Marketing Institute, I was involved in the Student Council. And one of the tasks that I was given then was to uh, organise four evening sessions where you got well-known people to speak to people about the whole concept of marketing and selling and so yeah. forth. So uh, uh, one of the first people I thought about was Fergal Quinn. And I wrote to him um, and uh, he immediately responded and said he'd be more than happy to do it and what day day and so on. And I have no doubt it was partly because of that talk that he gave that inspired me to think about the whole concept of retailing and and just customer service, which was what he was all about. He was famous for, yeah. Absolutely. So so anyway, that, uh, as as it turned out subsequently... um, 
I moved into Quinswood as marketing manager uh, and um, then the year after I joined Quinsworth, uh, we were contemplating the launch of Yellow Pack, which many listeners may remember <laughs> back in the it day. It went into the, into the lingua. The dictionary, yeah, yeah, it did, absolutely. Sometimes for the wrong reasons, perhaps, but nevertheless. Um, and uh, at the time, uh, Quinsworth was owned by Associated British Foods, um, which uh, was ultimately owned by the Weston family. Uh, Galen Weston was uh, very involved in the business uh, uh, that was Power Supermarkets before it became Quinsworth. And um, they owned a supermarket chain in Canada, still do, called Loblaws, a uh, very, very large chain. And they had launched their version of Yellow Pack. They called it No Name. Uh, so I was sent over to have a look at this operation and discovered when I was there that it was being presented on television by the president of the company, a guy called Dave Nicholl. Um, so I came back with all that material and so on. And we had actually made some ads for the launch of Yellow Pack, but we didn't like them. Right. Or at least Don Tidy and Dick Reeves, who were my bosses, didn't like them. Uh, so they said, no, I think we need to change tack with this. I think we need to try and get some sort of personality into this. You know, we're in the business that is all about personality. You had the Duns, you had the, the Quinns both in H. Williams and, 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 and Pat Quinn, obviously, historically. Um, so we need somebody to do this. And I said, well, we'll have to think about who that, you know, we're talking about somebody from outside or whatever. And they said, no, we're talking about you. Uh, and that was a terrible shock because I can truthfully say I would... Um, not have been interested whatsoever in being on that side of a microphone or a camera. I'd much prefer to have been behind the scenes. But anyway, they said, look, do a screen test. We'll see how it goes uh, for the launch of Yellow Pack. So we did that. Um, I have to say, I thought it was hor horrendous uh, listening to the sound of your own voice for the first time. Uh. Not, uh, it wasn't nice. But anyway, so we put it out. We did it. We did a screen test and actually it, it tested very well. So there you, uh, go. There you go. So that, that's how it well, all started. Well, let's have a listen to one from... Olden times. At Quinsworth this Christmas, the prices are magic. Jacob's USA assortment, six twenty-nine. Afternoon tea, seven seventy-five. Jacob's chocolate mallows, two pounds and ninepence. And yellow pack three-pound assorted Irish sweets, three pounds forty-nine. There's a huge selection for Christmas, and all at magic prices. Magic prices. They were very expensive. Well, uh, it's interesting listening back to those. Yes. Uh, it is, yeah. Well, of course, th that's uh, that's probably at least 25 years ago, I would guess. Uh, well, certainly 20 years ago. That's probably from the early 80s. Um, 6.29 for a box of USA biscuits? Yeah, well, you know, we that, that they were the they were competitive prices at the time, Marion, I can assure you. You were robbing from us. Absolutely not, under no circumstances. <laughs> Actually, Chris, Chris, Christmas was not a time when you made as much margin as you'd like to have made because uh, the market would have been ultra competitive. But if you made the comparison with today uh, and pricing today, I mean, there's a few things I'd point out. One, one would be that um, there was far fewer product range options then. So there wasn't as much competitiveness in brands that were available. Today. Yeah. Um, and the other thing, of course, is shrinkflation. So I, if you take a look at the sizes of those products back on those ads <laughs> in those days and look at the sizes today, you might find that the same product is about two thirds of the physical of the weight size yeah. as it was then. So right. we used to call that shrinkflation. Shrinkflation. <laughs> and if you call into a shop now, do you know, do you go in as an ordinary customer or do you notice things all the time? Um, it's in my DNA, so you notice things all the time. And I have a—I um, don't know—I don't know how one describes this, but I have a brain that thinks in pictures. 
Right. So I'd go into a store and I, I might not, I might go in for a particular purpose. Um, but then afterwards, a couple of hours later, uh, something comes into my head about something I saw in that store, which I hadn't noticed before. It's a bit, I sometimes describe it as a bit like, you know, when you go out uh, in the spring into the garden and all of a sudden there's a bud appears that wasn't there before. Yeah. And it sort of sticks in your brain. Yeah. Um, so that... Um, uh, so so yes, when I go in, I do. Uh, it's it's hard not to. So you notice things. You notice new brands arriving. You notice repositioning of sections. You notice, for instance, I would notice how much more fresh there is now in stores and how much less ambient, as we would call it, you know, dry goods. Yeah. So, you know, the proliferation of, of fresh and that obviously reflects the trends uh, of, of modern living, modern eating, modern consumer yeah. Well, um, it desires. may change now because of flight miles and, you know, having your avocados from South America mightn't be the most popular thing to do anymore. Well, absolutely. And, and you know, ultimately, these businesses are driven by consumers and by their attitudes and by their behaviours. So you're absolutely right. I mean, if that's... You know, and the there is the introduction, certainly, of obviously uh, short flight shaming and, and, and things like that. And they, yeah. they will have an impact. Absolutely. Yeah. Because uh, people who run businesses have got to be uh, conscious of where their customers are in their heads and where they're moving to, um, which is really the most important thing. And then finding ways to change from where they currently are right. and move on to that position. Caller was on to say, funny listening to Morris talk about Fargal Quinn as an inspiration. As a student, I had Morris address the marketing society of what was then RTC Galway back in the late 1980s. And he was equally inspiring. So well, that's lovely to hear. Take a bow yeah, thank you. On, on that one. The um, but I'm I'm interested because of the FAI, uh, and we were talking about it earlier on and about the board and about all of that. And I said to Mark Ty, I think it was, who would take it on? How many boards are you on at the moment? Uh, eight or nine. <laughs> Do you fancy another one? <laughs> Not particularly at the moment. I'm busy. Yeah, but it, it, things have changed. It seems to me. Over time, there's a far greater con- consciousness about governance. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, and, and we have not been served well in lots of areas and lots of sectors by poor governance. That's absolutely true. And uh, um, I mean, the, like the, my, my attitude to this is if, whether you're running a public company or a private company or you're involved in a charity, you're dealing with money. And that money is, is, is either owned by shareholders or it's donated by the public. For a purpose. For a specific purpose. Yeah. Um, and you must be absolutely ruthless about ensuring that that money uh, goes to the intended purposes and that afterwards you report on exactly how that's been done. Yeah. Both internally and externally. Um, and I, I remember Martin Nocton one time uh, of Glen Dimplex yeah. uh, giving, a, g- giving a, a talk about the 10 lessons in life. And one of the things he said always struck a chord with me. Uh, and he was talking about, you know, businesses where, you know, it could be a family business, but you could, could have other involvements. And he said, you know, what's in my left hand pocket is my money. What's in the right hand pocket is my company's money and they must never intermingle. And I think it was—it's tremendous advice. Um, yeah. And we have, we have now governance standards. I have to say, have improved considerably, um, particularly in the charity sector, which obviously I'm involved with with Barrettstown. With Barrettstown, yeah. Um, but I think it it has generally in business as well. Um, but it, it is just so, it's just so disappointing and disheartening when you when you see and when you hear 
about the lack of basic controls and mechanisms in businesses. I mean, it's not like as if they don't exist, that people don't understand what they are and what needs to be done. Uh, and then the fact that, uh, you know, so often we all get disappointed and let down uh, ultimately by, um, by, 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 I suppose, personal behaviour. Yeah. You know. I can't canvass you for the FAI, no? Not today. No. <laughs> Another day, maybe? <laughs> <laughs> and now tell me about Barrettstown because that's uh, you're leaving it after 10 years um, just remind people again they will know of Paul Newman but they might have forgotten the detail of it Sure well um, it's a great it's it's a great story really um, so Paul Newman uh, was a great philanthropist and actor and you know our generations would know him well um, uh, but he, he was um, uh, he was he was a great family man too and he had a friend who had a very sick, uh, ill child um, and he saw that he wasn't able to participate in having fun like normal kids should. Yeah. And he thought there must be a way of doing something about this. So he thought, well, what about starting a camp for kids that are sick and put, a, put all the specialism, specialisms that you need in place to ensure that it's a safe environment? So he did. He started a camp in 1988 in Connecticut um, and uh, um, that went very well. Um, and then subsequently, uh, other camps, were, he, he started a couple of other camps in America uh, and then he was looking towards Europe. And of course, he thought the natural place in Europe would be would be England, probably yep. to put a camp yep. in because of the size and so on. Um, but he had a there were a number of Irish American friends that he had, and they were trying to persuade him to come to Ireland. Uh, but apparently, Paul said, uh, "Sure, why would I put a camp in Ireland? It rains there all the time." Uh, so uh, anyway, uh, against against his better judgment, he was persuaded to come to Ireland because there was this facility in Ballymore Eustace. Uh, called Barristown Castle, which he was told had been donated to its previous owner um, uh, and was uh, in the beneficial ownership of the state and there was a possibility of getting it there. Now, what's interesting about that for me, Marion, is that it had been owned by Elizabeth Arden, the famous um, perfumerist, yeah. and uh, there was a red door on the castle and still is today, and she sold it to Garfield Weston, and Garfield Weston was Galen Weston's uh, father. Oh, right. So... So when I was asked to get involved in Barristown, you can see for me there was a serendipity. Connection. Because the person who asked me didn't even know about that connection. Right. But in any event, Paul um, Paul was persuaded to come to Barristown. And I don't know if you uh, you remember the film Jerry Maguire where Tom Cruise, uh, I can't remember who the actress was, but anyway, uh, she said to him in response to uh, his introduction, she said, you had me on hello. So when I drove through the gates of Barristown, it had me on hello, as it has with many other people. It's a magical place. It really right. is. Yeah. Um, and that's how it affected Paul as well. So Paul said, we must put the camp here. Um, and uh, so anyway, a, a proposal was made to the Irish government. Albert Reynolds was the Taoiseach of the day. And interestingly enough, and curiously enough, the Minister for Arts and Culture in the Gaeltic at the time was no, no, none other than our current president, Michael D. Higgins. Right. So he had an influence as well in persuading the government to give it to Barrett's, to give it through the Office of Public Works to Barrettstown for a pound of year, for a pound a year on a ninety nine year lease. Right. And so the rest is, as they say, and and what do the kids do there? They do they they they. They do things that you would want to do as a child. So they fish, um, they they do archery, they do arts and crafts, they do horse riding, they do... Uh, we have a fabulous indoor facility where they can do uh, rock climbing. So they just behave as kids, but in a safe environment. You know, we have a, we have a med shed down there, so when kids arrive at camp, they're taken into the med shed uh, and all their meds are registered in and they're, they're met by the medical director, Emer and G. 
goes through what their needs are and understands any issues they have, whether they might have a cold and all the rest of it. Um, so, you know, parents keep their kids, they wrap them up. If a child is seriously ill, they're wrapped up in cotton wool by yeah. their parents and they're so afraid to let them out. So we rely on the on the fantastic oncologists in Crumlin and other hospitals to convince the parents that this is a good place to go and talk to other parents whose children who've been there. Um, and so they let them go with great trepidation and then they come back after a week at camp and frequently they say, you've transformed our child. All of a sudden, they're a child again and they're a child again because... They've been in an environment with maybe 120 other children who have similar diseases. So yeah. they feel normal. Ordinary. Ordinary. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And so they do ordinary things. Um, and, and so, you know, when they go back home, I, I think Professor Owen Smith put it really well. He's an oncologist in Crumlin. He said, in Crumlin, we treat the illness. In Barristown, you treat the child. Right, nice way to put it. Yeah, yeah very, very nice way to put it. Anyway, you're hanging up your socks. Uh, and do you know... Just to explain now why I'm hanging up my socks. So yeah. back to governance. So I've been chairman of the board for nine years. And so we, 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 have, we have important governance standards. And when your time is up, you should move on. So I've done my term on the right. board. And that's why. So it's not like... And it's not like I'm going to disassociate myself in any way because uh, in January of this year, I was asked to chair... The, 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 the Paul Newman camps are now called the Serious Fund Children's Network, partly because... Paul is not known to the younger generations, but the whole concept of camp is. So it was renamed uh, Serious Fund Children's uh, Network, founded by Paul Newman. There are 30 camps and programmes around the world, and I was asked to become chairman of the worldwide organisation right. in January. So I'm going to maintain, obviously, a very close relationship. Okay. Now, uh, I see a very interesting quote there from uh, Minister Shane Ross, and it refers me back. You were chair of the Board of Bank of Scotland, Ireland... I was. Right up to the collapse. From 26 to 2010, I was there, yeah. Yeah. Have you anything to say about the disaster? That was where the 100% mortgages started, wasn't it? They were the first bank to introduce uh, those in 1999, I think, or 2000. That's right. Yeah. 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 Which led to all the chaos and all the collapse. Well, when you say led to all the chaos, I would say, you know, the marketplace at the time um, was, was, was looking for a um, new product and Bank of Scotland introduced that particular one and they were quickly followed by others. Um, yes. So, you know, the, the banking industry, uh, obviously, uh, I mean, it's, it's easy, I suppose, to be wise in hindsight, but the banking industry obviously lent far too much money. Um, many people um, um, in the in the in the marketplace and in the economy uh, lost the run of themselves, ourselves. Uh, I could include myself in that, um, and um, uh, and we suffered the we suffered the, the the pains of that for almost a decade. Subsequently, subsequent to people the are still suffering yes, they are. from absolutely that. people are still losing their homes yeah. now. Why, as chair of the board, didn't you spot that? Um, well, as chair of the board, uh, you're as the non-executive chair of the board. You know your responsibility is to is to um, is obviously to uh, ensure or try to ensure as best you can that the bank is being run properly and efficiently and well, uh, that it's behaving to the what would have been called the macro potential rules set by the central bank and so on, um, and the bank was doing all those things at that time. Um, when I look back on it, um, the the issues that I would have seen. Um, so, if I mean, I, and this is not an excuse, but I joined that bank in two thousand and six. All the money was lent by two thousand and six, pretty much. Um, you know, the collapse started at the back end of two thousand and seven and into two thousand and eight. But 
when I looked at it, the sectoral concentration, uh, for instance, the bank had in, 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 their, in their particular case, actually, uh, one particular example in the hotel sector. Um, uh, and, you know, I looked at it and I, m- one of my first thoughts was, we don't have hotel experts in the bank. So how do we know that we're not over lending or how do we know that we're appropriately lending? Um, but it was a, it, it was a, it was, and this is in, in part one of the challenges when you're in a, a in a business sector in an economy and you have competitors who are doing whatever they're do they're doing um, and if you're a public company you're under pressure from your shareholders and from investors and analysts to uh, continue to improve and drive performance um, and sometimes that it happens uh, that that gets in the way of, of greater prudence and greater long-term thinking and it's actually a business challenge not just in banking it's across the world it's a problem. The short term, the, you know, the short termism, uh, which sometimes afflicts businesses and they can't think. Uh, when I say it's not they can't think, it's that they're put under a huge pressure to deliver short term performance, which yeah. in the long term is not necessarily good for them as a business or for their shareholders. Right. Um, yeah, pity nobody talks about that. Or indeed our supervisory. But the Ministry for... I have to read this out to you. Uh, he was definitely not your um, number, number one, one fan. fan. <laughs> no. He says, Pratt is a mighty flop, an insider par excellence, a waffler, engages in futile activities. He's been rewarded for failure. One of the untouchables, the people who helped wreck Ireland. That's hardly true, is it? Um, in the context of uh, he's been rewarded for failure. Um, but I mean, what, what the point, uh, first of all, I mean, the minister is, the, you know, he wasn't a minister at the time, he's a minister now. So, yeah. I've, and I've dealt with him, as you probably know, yeah. uh, in, because I've been involved in the tourism sector. Exactly. You know? um, yeah. So, Business is business. Um, it's as simple as that. And, and uh, you know, that's my view. I don't take these things personally. Uh, mind you, I have to say, um, my, my poor mother, Lord Rester, certainly would have done, but I didn't because I recognise the reality that that's the world you live in. Um, and uh, so, you know, in, in, in the context of that, uh, I... I actually said in 2008 when I resigned from CNC, which is what he's talking about. Yeah. yeah. Uh, that the company didn't perform to the expectations and standards I had set. So I was leaving. Yeah. Right. Okay. He didn't. He, he, he. You couldn't say he held back really in any way, could you? Mind you, as you say, that he wasn't a minister at the time. Listen, it's very nice to see you. Uh, good luck with uh, future plans with the um, Barrettstown people, and uh, thank you very much indeed for coming in. Thank you, Mary. Okay, we'll take a break.